I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I guess my first question, if, if we think about what's happened, I guess, in the British context in the last few years, so obviously like 2011, uh, so-called riots, um, obviously the state doesn't really often use the charge of riot because then it kind of implicates the police federation having to pay up because uh, they have a responsibility uh, for maintaining public order, maintaining the Queen's peace, uh, which is still a thing. And, but they often use the charge of violent disorder. And, and nevertheless, these things are referred to as, as riots, as we know. Um, and I guess in more recent days, like the last couple of days, there have been a few incidents in parks where like, um, groups of mainly young black people have been harassed by police uh, for having water fights at the end of term. Like very young people, actually, teenagers, uh, being arrested, uh, questions of stabbings and so on. And there's a kind of idea that was... Uh, mooted in The Guardian today that these, these sorts of things have something to do with temperature. And one of the things I wanted to start off by <laughs> mentioning was perhaps this paradoxical situation in which there are often these kind of like um, functionalist or Joshua described as positivist accounts for riots, that somehow these are kind of like reactions to something like temperature. So there are some theorists saying that riots happen between the degrees of 27 degrees and 32 and like after 32, like people don't bother. And, <laughs> but having just been in Athens and in Exarchia, which is like the anarchist area where the police don't go in, like to be fair, lots of the leftist people were saying that like nothing will happen in the summer because it's too hot. <laughs> but let's not accept those analyses for one second because I think there are in relation to something like David Cameron's uh, non-explanation, deliberate non-explanation in 2011. Remember he said that the riots are criminality, pure and simple, and I think there's a kind of combination of this like positivist uh, non-explanation and this uh, non-explanation <laughs> explanation. Um, and I think I wanted to ask Joshua about the, the drive and the desire and the context for writing this book and what it means to give an, a materialist account and an analysis of what a riot is and what it means and why you, why you kind of felt moved to write this book in the first place. Yeah, thank you. And it's nice to see you all. Uh, it's sort of lovely to think that riot studies, could you, you could start from the position of being like a, a weatherman. And just yeah. be like, well, cloudy today, chance of riots is... Um, and, and of course, that's one of, the his, one, one of the histories. It's not so much weather claims, but these positivistic, is the term I use, claims that seek to explain riots as... Um, deriving from sort of a single, a fundamental cause that's external. Most often, historically, it's the, it's the price of bread. Um, and people will sort of, even to this, this has been going on for centuries. People will tell you at a certain relative cost of bread, you get riots. French Revolution, right, comes at the moment when the average family is starting to spend more than a third of their income per week on bread. And this is one of the famous accounts of it. Uh, and I wasn't, I wasn't satisfied with that account, which didn't seem explanatory. And then there's these other accounts which have much more to do with sort of 
the political experience of people in, in larger political modes. Alain Badiou is quite famous for this account, and that also didn't seem satisfactory. So I had these two poles, one the, the sort of positivistic and one the sort of idealistically political. That's reductive uh, to Badiou, but that happens. Uh, and I, I, I was interested in, in a course between that, but I had no idea. Those were sort of hovering in my mind as, as ways people thought about this. I hadn't started thinking about it myself until 2011 in a serious way when I was engaged in an online debate with a bunch of other political organizers. I'd been doing some political organizing uh, mostly in the universities at that time, which were uh, beginning a period of intensified austerity. I know you're familiar with that sequence as well here. Uh, and there had been a series of uh, fairly violent confrontations between students and police on campuses. Uh, and then the riots happened in Tottenham here. And so there was this online discussion among sort of political thinkers and organizers. And the, the tenor of the conversation sort of tended toward should we do riots? Should we not do riots? Um, do they work? Do they not work? And I was quite baffled by this conversation. It made no sense to me. It didn't just seem like the wrong set of questions. It seemed to me the obvious thing to say was, well, they're coming. Like, there are already an increasing number of riots. There have been for some time. There's going to be more and more. The question is not, are you a good riot or a bad riot? Uh, the question is, since there's going to be more and more, what, what might be one's orientation toward them? How might one understand them? What's the context of them? Why are we seeing more and more? Can we provide a sort of analytical basis which understands them as a fundamental political phenomenon, as they have been since... My book starts the story in 1347. Uh, um, they've been a fundamental feature of political struggle, and I would argue class struggle, for centuries and centuries. And so my goal is to understand why that particular kind of struggle had returned with a vengeance, as it were, and was increasing. So that was sort of the origin, was wanting to recognize them as a, a necessary and ongoing and increasing phenomenon and to try and have the best account of what their conditions were so we might understand the circumstances in which they happen and which we operate. Yeah. No, I, I think that, I think there is something about this, even the idea of analyzing riots, like I remember day two of the 2011 riots, I wrote a short piece for The Guardian, like trying to explain perhaps what was going on in relation to police racism, police violence, police harassment, and austerity measures. And a lot of the response was, you can't analyse this, you can't explain this, now is not the time to analyse, now is the time to act. And there's this kind of edict on even like attempting to try to like give any form of uh, causal explanation, whether it be a complex one around economics and race and price setting <laughs> and um, I'll ask you in a minute about how you define the relation, the difference perhaps um, and that there's something kind of like yeah you're not allowed to talk about riots in a certain way sometimes you know like so yeah the, the criminality pure and simple like as if that's an explanation on its, on its own but I mean one thing I wanted to say that's very effective in the book is you trace this line between anarchism and communist readings of, of riots and strikes. And I think that's, that's really useful work because a lot of the time I think there's both a left and a right critique of riots, for example. So the left critique would be like, oh, it's uh, spontaneous, it's not organised, you know, it doesn't contribute to class struggle in a particular way. The right wing response, as we know, is the dominant one. But, you know, yeah, this is, this is meaningless, uh, consumerist, criminal, etc. Um, and I think... I don't know, there's something to be said for this 
you know, not taking sides in a certain way, you know, not taking either of the left sides on riots and strikes, you know. There are Marxist critiques of strikes as a, and, and there are anarchist critiques of strikes, there are, you know, and like, there's something kind of key about that sort of methodology, I think. Yeah, I mean, that covers a lot, of, a lot of ground. I think there is this real prohibition that I know you encountered in your own writing against trying to provide a sort of uh, steady-headed, rational account of, of riots uh, since it's quite important to many people, clearly, sort of uh, um, the, the mainstream of the establishment, whatever, to uh, refuse to recognize in the riot not so much a political demand, which is often a language people use, but a, a, but a political focus or a political direction or a political content. Um, and the, the desire for them not to have any uh, sort of political direction is an incredibly powerful one. And this goes with the sense of them being disorder or disorganized, which is the, the term I use. Riots are always described as a public disorder in, in the legal language across centuries and across nations public disorder and violence are the fundamental terms. I think these are uh, dangerously mis- dangerous misrecognitions. Maybe we'll come to that in a minute. But the desire to recognize them as disorder is the desire to, to insist they're unthinkable. Um, because if they're thinkable, they might be justifiable. Mm-hmm. And very few people are willing to risk that a, the idea that a riot might be justifiable. They're sort of a paternalistic well, we understand people in pain, acting out. But even that removes its content, right? It makes it into a spasm, a sort of voluntarist, sudden, spontaneous uprising. And that's what people need the riot to be. I think that's a terrible account of what a riot is. And it's also, and I think this is important to stress, uh, a deeply racialized, if not racist, account, uh, which divides the riot from other kinds of political activity, which are thoughtful, strategic, organized, coordinated, almost always in the West, coded as things white people do. Uh, And it turns out that people of color are just consumed by spontaneous emotion. This is, of course, a a, a racist discourse that's been with us for quite a long time, and it dominates the thinking about the riot in the West, uh, with, with rare exceptions. Um, the racialization of the riot is this idea that it is uh, an, an apolitical upwelling. And so any account to sort of present it as rational is to undo centuries of racial logic as well as a lot of political logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking in terms of uh, analytic, you know, definitional questions. I mean, if like maybe probably some people haven't read the, the book yet. And um, I mean, maybe there might be a, a point here where you, it would be good to simply, I mean, because you make very clear definitions in yeah. the book about what a right is and its relationship to price yeah. and its relationship to violence or otherwise, and also what a strike is. And I mean, maybe if you could just say a bit about yeah, I think, how I think you use those terms. That's probably important to do for to have, <laughs> have the book make any sense whatsoever. Uh, so it didn't first occur to me that I needed to define the terms. I just sort of thought I wanted to approach the riot in a certain way. And reading the literature on it, it became clear that the definition of riots provided both by the law and by scholars was really inadequate. As as I know, it it depended entirely on the category of violence, on uh, public disorder. It requires multiple people. The minimum is three. Most commonly across nations, it needs 12 people. Uh, So there have to be like 12 disorderly, illegal, violent people. And that makes a riot. So, or, you know, or a jury. 
Well, right, that's it's the exact opposite of a jury. It's like a, it's, it's a sort of magic formula. Um, and, um, that was Joshua's line. I don't want to take credit for that. He says it in the book. And, you know, this, this didn't work for me for a, for a variety of reasons. There's two main ones, uh, and they're these. One, it erases the extraordinarily violent history of strikes. There's a great desire to render strikes as this highly... Uh, almost ascetic, right? It's a refusal, it's a laying down of tools, it's a not doing something, it follows a legalistic framework, you march in an orderly way. And of course, that betrays uh, the vast history of strikes, many of which are endlessly violent and confrontational. I can give you a long list of fascinating ones, the ones that sort of most interest me. There's two strikes by uh, textile workers in Lyon, France, in 1831 and 1834, where there's actual barricade fighting throughout the city. Um, extraordinarily, and of course, there's riots that end up being identified as wars, the Colorado Coalfield War, and so on. Uh, so if you can't use that distinction, I mean, you might say, well, if there's barricade fighting, that's a, that's a riot or a rebellion or uprising and not a strike. How do you make a distinction? I needed a different distinction. I uh, was very fortunate in, in this case in that um, I had at my disposal a book I'd actually borrowed from Nina's shelf while I was staying with her several years ago, which was E.P. Thompson's uh, um, uh, collection of writings. And he has this great essay, which uh, people remember uh, largely for being a description about the adulteration of bread uh, sold to the proletariat in the 18th century, but it's actually an attempt to reckon with the history of riots. And he begins to make a distinction. He doesn't quite finish it, and it's the one that I sort of took and developed, which is this. Uh, he simply identifies or begins to identify riots as a form of price setting in the marketplace over goods. When, when someone is market dependent and needs to subsist via market goods, riots are struggle over the price. So the whole history of bread riots and going down to the bakers and demanding they lower the price of bread or, um, or seizing the bread from them uh, or blocking grains that are being shipped away to the world market and, and claiming them. So that's a struggle over the cost of subsistence goods, right? market goods. And then a strike is a struggle over the price of labor power. Um, it's, of course, a bit more complicated than that. Strikes are often over working conditions, which I would argue are pretty similar to the, the, um, the cost of the wage. It's how much the owner is going to pay for work, uh, the work conditions to be adequate and satisfactory uh, for workers. Uh, so once you have that distinction in which riots are price-setting in the place of the market and strikes are price-setting in the place of work, you then can sort of divide these out into the classical political economic categories of circulation and production. So production is where we make stuff. Factory is the classic, but not the only scene of production. And uh, that's where you work for a wage, right? So strikes are struggles in the space of production, and riots are struggles in the space of circulation. Circulation is the space of exchange, transportation, consumption, um, and... Uh, transportation is a vexed category. I'm hoping we cannot get too marxological tonight, although if you want to hang around, <laughs> give me a couple of drinks, we can, we can go there. Uh, um, uh, so that is the distinction I end up developing, right, is, is just this fundamental idea that riots are the leading form, although not the only form, of what I call circulation struggles, which would also include things like the blockade, the occupation, and so on. And strikes are the leading form of the production struggle. Uh, and so this, I think, gives us a slightly different way to think about what people are doing over the course of the period from the 14th century to the present. 
people who are market dependent but are excluded from the wage or shifted into circulation, they're going to do that kind of struggle, a circulation struggle, because the market is a space of circulation, right, exchange. So people who are in that space are going to fight in that way. And people who are in the space of production, who work in a factory or another place where they're, they're, they live through the wage, they're going to fight in that way, and they're going to strike. And so you have historical periods in which the economic order is dominated by market dependency and circulation, but the wage is maybe not generalized. You can think about, for example, England in the period from the 14th century to the late 18th, early 19th century, uh, and riots really predominate over strikes. When you start to get the rise of industrial production, the Industrial Revolution, the generalization of the wage form, and you have an expanding entrance of people into the wage, strikes dominate within what Charles Tilley calls the repertoire of collective action. And when the wage starts to recede, when unemployment starts to go up, when you start to get the generation of surplus population, when you start to get um, automation and outsourcing, offshoring, really changing the dynamic, when you start to get deindustrialization, and you again return to periods where you have a large number of people who are market dependent but don't have direct access to the wage, back to circulation struggles and back to the riot. And in my account, that maps pretty well onto this long history from the 14th century to the present, which I name riot, strike, riot, is really periods of circulation, production, circulation, uh, in which you get those kinds of struggles. So I think that's the, the capsule definition. You don't, have to, you're done, you don't have to buy the book now. That's it. You're, <laughs> well, there's, there are a couple other chapters. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a kind of, um, sort of question that runs alongside this, and we had this discussion earlier about when economics is... Uh, seen as reductionist or when a, a, an explanation about uh, racial oppression is seen as reductionist and I, you know, it, there's a kind of bigger question hovering here which is maybe why people think they're writing uh, you know, if, they, if it's not straightforwardly, you know emotionally mapping onto uh, an economic question for example, in particular circumstances so we know, for example, that many things that are described as riots are triggered by the police and state killing of uh, usually a young black man. I mean, that was the, the, the cause of the 2011 riots, or in, certainly in the way they treated families and supporters in, in Tottenham Police Station. And there is a kind of... And, and, you know, reading Joel Olson stuff about 19th century white riots, race riots that uh, consolidated a particular form of uh, whiteness... Um, so that the riots don't just construct an image of, of blackness, but also of, of whiteness. And I think the 19th century, especially if, if this is supposed to be a period of strikes and not riots, what then do we do with right-wing or white uh, supremacist riots You know that actually consolidate a, a particular image of whiteness? And, and maybe this relates to something that's happening in at the moment in relation to, to Brexit, where the category of Whiteness is, 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 seems surprisingly fragile if you're a Polish worker, for example. You know, these are kind of always contingent, uh, you know, assimilations or whatever you want to say. And, and I, I suppose there's this very, very difficult question about if you take this methodological long durée approach, how then does that relate to the immediacy and the reality of, of racial, the racial relation to both riot and strike? Um, and if you think about something like Black Lives Matter, which doesn't present itself as a series of riots, but is nevertheless something to do with uh, a relation to violence, structural violence, so that blocking, stopping the violence uh, 
stopping the circulation of violence, preventing uh, the continuation of the everyday, right, this form of direct action where you block roads, you block airports, you stop the, the, the process of the everyday because the structural reproduction of racism, which is the everyday, is, is the problem, right? And, and so that that form of action, you know, which is neither perhaps a riot nor a strike, but something else, and that there are, there are missing categories, perhaps, you know, the demonstration, the direct action, the protest, you know, between the right and the strike, maybe, or somewhere floating around constellationally. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I kind of, this question about the relationship between economics, race, and, and, and violence, how, how can we put them all together, in a way? That's, that's really hard. <laughs> Sorry. So that was about 20 really good questions. Um, I'll try and pick out a couple, and I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll miss some, and you, you're welcome to remind me, and I, I apologize if I do. Um, the first thing about sort of the, like the experience of a riot or why people think they're rioting, I think this is actually a, a, a crucial question, but it's not the question I wrote a book about. And yeah. a, a, other people have begun okay. to, to, to think about this in various ways I find quite interesting. We're, um, in an unofficial conversation, by, by sheer chance, walking home from school, I've been involved in a riot or two, and I could tell you my experience of how it, how it felt. Um, um, I don't think there's actually any sort of deep opposition between a political economic account of the long durée of riot and strike and the particular moment of the riot and the experience someone is, someone is having. Um, I don't think we've ever really... The, the sudden need to make those match up is quite obscure. I'm a literature professor, right? And we don't suddenly say, like, oh... But Hemingway didn't think he was writing a book about this, you know, about the structure of, the, of Christianity, right? He thought he was writing a book about a fish, uh, like you know, and, and like no one, no one need, no one needs to have that analytic framework. Uh, and I'm not sure why we need to have it about riots. And you can have it both be the case that people's experiences are real and true, but that they fit within this larger logic as well. And that's sort of the problem I've tried to tried mm-hmm. to think, right? So about the racialization of the riot. Uh, I actually, in some ways, I think it's fairly clear, right? Actually, it strikes me as not fundamentally complicated, even within a fairly economic framework. Uh, I don't identify an opposition of race and class uh, that some people do. I certainly am very skeptical of kind of a banal class reductionism that a kind of orthodox or crude Marxism uh, devotes itself to. But listen, so to take the circumstance in the United States, which I'm more familiar with, uh, in the, the, the second period of riot, right? You get this phenomenon in which you start to get deindustrialization in the United States. It comes earlier than people think in the cities like Detroit and Newark, which are the um, early industrializing cities in the U.S. They start to deindustrialize around 1960, and they start to shed jobs. And they shed jobs in a super racialized way for a lot of reasons. The main reason is union policies that have to do with last hired, first fired, so the unions fight for a long time in the 20th century not to hire black people in the United States. Eventually they do, uh, but they're the last hired. And so when deindustrialization starts to happen, the people who get fired are African Americans. Uh, so in Detroit, for example, you have massive white flight as the car and auto industry starts to contract, uh, and so you have relatively more black workers. But in fact, they're hiring black, they're firing black workers very quickly. Uh, and so a, you have a racialized working population. Um, but B, you have a sudden huge generation of surplus population who are denied primary access to the wage. They're put out of work in Detroit. Black unemployment skyrockets in this period. 
white unemployment doesn't skyrocket because white people just leave. There's the famed white flight. Uh, and so you have a massively accelerating surplus population of, of, of black people in Detroit, and you get one of the two biggest riots of the 60s. The other biggest riot is Newark. The other biggest person, like deindustrializing city, right? So it turns out deindustrialization is a racial phenomenon, and it generates a black population who does not have direct access to the wage, who starts, enters into informal labor, um, which you know, includes things, everything from sex work and drug dealing to shoe shines and, and casual hair salons and selling uh, ind individual cigarettes on the street corner, which Eric Garner would be killed by the police for uh, in New York in 2014. So the phenomenon of the shift into circulation in sort of some abstract political economic sense, is an entirely racialized phenomenon. And this is true not just in the United States, although the United States is a lovely example of it. So I think it's possible to narrate this sort of uh, the racialization of the riot and the race riot, and I'm gonna, I'll talk about the white riot in a second, with this political economic narration. Now what's, I think, important to recognize is that one of the responses to this production of a of a black surplus population is an incredibly intensified policing regime and a hyper-incarceration regime, which makes daily life for these uh, people ceaselessly violent. So the idea that the problem that, of the riot is that it's violent, this is a deeply delusional idea. Right? This is an idea you can only have if you think daily life is not violent. And maybe some of us in this room have the opportunity to think that. We are mistaken. For most of the world, daily life is fantastically violent, endlessly, moment by moment, and not just when you have the confrontation with the police, when you have stop and frisk, when you get arrested for nothing, but uh, in the struggles you're put through to try and stay alive, uh, in every uh, interaction you have, the systemic and structural violence of everyday life is so profound that the idea of the riot as a leap into violence is... Uh, I'm not really into the language of privilege that much, but I hope you'll forgive me for a moment. It's a deeply privileged idea uh, when riot stalks communities every day, all day. Uh, and so this, the violence, racialization, political economy sort of all come together uh, in, this, in this nexus. Now what's interesting is that the race riot, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vexed term. It's vexed for a, a couple of reasons, and maybe the best reason is that insofar as riots are organized around race in the United States, from the period of about the 1870s or 1880s to the 1950s, race riots almost without fail involved white populations subordinating communities of color, not just black people, but also Chinese and Chinese American uh, populations, Latinos and Latinas, the famed Zoot Suit riots in Los Angeles. It's a long series of white riots um, uh, attacking subordinated communities. So what's, so what's striking is that those riots repeatedly tend to be in situations that I think might resonate with the current moment of Brexit and so on, in which white populations feel like their employment is threatened by these uh, uh, groups of immigrants or whatever the category is, and they attack these groups fairly viciously and violently. So it's a period in which you have the employed attacking the unemployed. And that's the drama of the race riot in the United States for this period, which is a period of production. 
The shift that comes in the 1960s when you start to get deindustrialization, production starts to fade, you start to get the rise of kinds of circulation strategies for capital, that's when the race riot inverts. There's a perfect inversion, right? Suddenly race riots are about almost invariably uh, black populations rioting. And these are riots of the unemployed, not the employed, whereas white riots are, are consistently riots of the employed whose employment is threatened whereas black riots are consistently riots led by the unemployed. Uh, they may involve workers, absolutely. Uh, riots often do, but they don't appear as workers, right? They appear just as people, rioters. So, uh, so I think there's a way that these narratives come together, and there's different apertures to look at them. You can look at them as, like, what's the experience of an individual in this situation? And you can look at it from the aperture of political economy or the aperture of various other things, and I actually think they're in pretty good accord. I don't think they oppose each other very much. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess one other thing to note would be, you know, something like the predominance or, you know, phenomena of, of prison riots and riots in refugee centres, for example, like, which are happening quite often, and, like, the only recorded use of rubber bullets on mainland Britain is in prison, isn't during prison riots, right, but not during protests. Is that true? Yeah. So, there, you know, there's a kind of you question about... You guys got it easy. <laughs> yeah, no, sure. <laughs> no way. <laughs> but there's a kind of... Um, yeah, but they're using Northern Ireland, right? That's the point about mainland. Anyway. But, but, but there's a kind of question about, like, uh, you know, containment and riots within those situations where you're not just a uh, surplus population, you're not just unemployed. You are captive. I mean, you are either used as free labour... Or you are simply a, a non-person in a strict state-bound sense, right? So there are riots constantly in uh, Moria, in, in Greece, you know, this really prison, prison camp, you know, where asylum seekers are held. And I don't know, I, I wonder if there's something about this sense of, of containment and the riot, you know, the riot as a form of frustration, justified frustration with temporality with the time that you've been assigned, you know, that you don't exist as a person with someone who has geography and as someone who has a sense of time. I that we also need to, like, analyse what it means to feel this profound sense of placelessness, limbo, dispossession. I, I, oh, I, I agree, and I think that um, as that continues, the need to analyse it is going to grow. I... I I'm not quite sure I follow you when you say, well, you're not just surplus population. You're not, I mean, because I don't, I don't, okay, I don't, yeah, ha- yeah. don't want to have any account of, of yeah. just. One is many things at many times. Yeah. I guess the argument that I'm sort of trying to follow is, um, like, my, my case might be much simpler than yours, which is just that the riot is the name for the thing that pe- people can do in that situation yeah. when they find their lives intolerable. Many, many people find their lives intolerable in various situations. And, you know, my, my basic rule of thumb... Sometimes people hear me saying, like, oh, we've reached an age of riot, the strike is over, you shouldn't strike, if you strike, you've really, you've really missed the historical boat, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> I don't want to be heard to say that. First of all, the, the book is not a book of ad- advocacy, but nor, it, it does not tell people what to do. And the, the most important thing I've learned trying to look at what's happened is this sort of simple, I don't... I don't mean to have any wisdom whatsoever. I've tried to avoid that strenuously in my life. I've done a pretty good job. The thing I've come to know is people fight where they are. People fight where they are. 
over and over again, people in many situations find their lives intolerable and they fight where they are with the methods available to them. And when you're in uh, an internment camp, you can't go on strike. You can call it a strike, but that's actually meaningless language. The kinds of things you can do uh, are going to look to other people like a riot. So one of the interests I have is trying to sort of recode or resignify what the word riot means and just let it be not saying like, oh, this is mindless, this is thoughtless, this is apolitical, this is disorder, this is chaos, this is violence, and have it be the name for how people fight in certain situations. Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing, maybe before I open it up to questions, is just like this aspect of collectivity, which we haven't really stressed enough, which is central uh, to both the strike and the right, and to the protest and demonstration, perhaps. But the good ones, anyway. Um, I guess, you know, there is a sense of, yeah, a different way of, of being together which is present in the right. Like, if you look at uh, what people said about participation in the 2011 riots in, in England, they said it was the best day of my life. It was a day in which, like, we had the streets, the police didn't have the streets. You know, there was a feeling in which, like, the finitude of the police... Oh, I don't mean their actual lives. I mean <laughs> their, their actual numbers. Like, there weren't enough police to contain the situation, right? So there's a sense of which there is a, there is a social... Uh, horizon, which is very different from the lived everyday experience where, you know, and this is a collective experience. I, I, I agree, and I, I, I would agree that that is a magic experience, right? The, I mean, for me, the, the encounter with that is this um, in my life, I don't experience myself as being directly policed all the time. Every now and then, but not all the time. Uh, I am, but I don't have to experience it directly and violently as much as many other people do. And in the moment of the riot, someone breaks the window. There's a scholar who calls that the grammar of the riot. And the grammar of the sentence always begins with the breaking of a window. This has been true for a long time. Uh, Isabel Armstrong is, it came up with, with the term. I always want to sort of give, give credit where, where due. Uh, but there's a moment when you realize, well, someone else can break a window and nothing's gonna, the, the, the cops aren't going to stop you. Why aren't the cops? Have they changed their mind? Have they changed their nature? Are cops somehow different? No, cops don't change. It's that they recognize that it's actually, there's not enough of them to contain what's going to happen without great risk to themselves, and they withdraw. And that's the moment when you know this very odd thing, which is that it's not an ambient, that, that policing is not an ambient, magical, political, abstract phenomenon. It's a numbers game. It's a force on force. And almost always they have you outgunned, and almost always they will have you outgunned, and this is why you should be very circumspect in your lives. But the moment comes and you realize, oh, it's a numbers game. And right now, the number's on our side. Policing is over. And suddenly, it's like, uh, here's what I always compare it to. A few years ago, I was having trouble sleeping. I took a couple aspirin before bed, and I fell asleep. This is a terrible knowledge, right? Because that's when you know you've been in pain the whole time and didn't know it. And you take the aspirin, and the pain goes away, and you fall asleep. Minor story. But that's that moment in the riot, right? When you realize you've been subject to this discipline all the time, all the time, every second. You didn't even quite know it. It was just always there humming. And then it vanishes. And that vanishing is one of the most extraordinary feelings in the world. And I think that when people have it, it they do experience it as a collectivity, right? Because it's about a sort of balance of forces. Yeah, but the second part of this is that they just waited until they got all the CCTV footage and fingerprints and arrested everyone and sent them all to prison anyway. But my point was, like, where you... <laughs> for a long time. And... But those two things are both true, okay? 
But what I wanted to lead on to just finally was this question of the commune, which is where you finish the book, which is, I, I don't know, I mean, maybe if you could define, you know, just, just briefly, I, I know that this is not a normative book, this is not, like you said, this is not a book about what I want you to do, this is not a, like, call to arms, this is not, like, that kind of book. But nevertheless, there is a future, there is a horizon for the, the future riot or the possibility of rioting that is, um, that culminates in your term, yeah. the commune. Yeah. So, yeah, I think mean, there's a good place to, I'll try and give an answer. We can yeah. end it. We can have, we can have questions. Um, and I'll actually start with the CCTV point, which is right, which is to say, even though you have these moments of experience, um, the power of the state remains extraordinary. And there's a historical shift that's worth noting, right, which I want to sort of touch on for a second before I get to the issue of the commune, which is the difference between the, the period of riot from, let's say, the 16th through 18th centuries and the current period of riot. In that earlier period, often the state was quite far away. There's no standing police force. Right? In the town you live in, you live in some, some small town, there's no standing police force. There's maybe a couple of beetles or a bailiff, very limited state presence, whereas the market is very near. The things you need for subsistence, they're probably all made within 25 miles of where you live. And you could imagine going out and seizing them. Now, of course, we're in the reverse situation. The market is far. The things that you subsist on are made in another county, in another country, in another continent. They travel across vast supply chains being assembled bit by bit. It's much harder to imagine just seizing them and making a life on what you're seizing in the marketplace. At the same time, the state is near. CCTV cameras are everywhere. The police are everywhere. As we always like to point out, uh, the, the police force in New York City is the sixth largest army in the world. Uh, and uh, so there's been this real inversion which changes the status of the riot. But so here's my moment of optimism about this. Like, I, I don't think there's a future for the riot. Like if we just riot enough, we will be free. But I think the riot actually has an optimistic side to it. So if we think of this distinction that I drew earlier on between the the struggle over the value of wages, the price of wages, and over the price of market goods. So we've seen in the almost total collapse of the labor movement in the West. I know some people will take umbrage of this concept, and you're free to take umbrage. The data will not be on your side, but umbrage will be on your side, so you'll have that going for you. Um, uh, we've seen in almost the total collapse of the labor movement uh, a waning of struggles over the, the price of the wage. Um, we return thus to struggles over the price of market goods, struggles in circulation, which the riot is not the only example of, but which it signifies. But that too reaches its limits because of this historical change. We can no longer imagine going to the marketplace and seizing everything we need to make a life with. You can loot, and indeed should, but if you, you know, if, even if you're very canny, you'll get enough to survive for, what, two weeks, three weeks, a month, if you're extremely strategic with what you get. You certainly can't imagine ongoing subsistence through seizing the marketplace in a way that you once could. So the question is, what lies beyond the struggle over the wage and the struggle over the overprice? Struggle will eventually detach from both of those things, right? The struggle has to become how you reproduce yourselves, how you subsist, beyond the wage and beyond the market. Right? That has to be what, where the struggle goes to when neither the wage nor the market can satisfy. 
And that's what I name the commune, right? The struggle to reproduce yourselves beyond wage and price, beyond market and, and job. For me, that's what the commune is. It's not eight people moving to a house in the country. It's probably not a replay of the Paris commune, although that wasn't terrible. Uh, but it's any struggle that takes up the fundamental question, how do we reproduce ourselves without reference to the wage or the market? And that's coming. I believe that's coming as the capacity of the wage and the market to satisfy fundamental human needs continues to wane and collapse, and more and more people are excluded from both of those. It's a fundamentally feminist question. I mean, it's a question Absolutely. that feminism has been posing for a very long time. And indeed, I mean, we could go back to that early history where riots in this country, in the, in the early, like, so here's a great fact. Uh, early bread riots in the 14th, 15th century were generally signaled by someone, and it was almost always a woman, uh, putting up a piece of bread on like a fishing pole kind of thing, like, you know, and holding it up, indicating that the riot was on. It's good to know, right? Bread on a fishing pole. And at some point, they started painting the bread black uh, to signify it was really on. And so that's actually the source of the black flag, is these, these loaves of bread painted black and held up on, on sticks. But because women were often changing from place to place, charged with a marketing situation for a family, and since riots are all about the marketplace, women over and over again led riots. And this question of reproduction, right, and having to been historically charged with addressing the question of reproduction is a fundamental feminist question, right? And I think the, um, just as the riot opens clearly onto the question of race and racialization, the riot and the commune opens fundamentally on, onto the question of um, gender and the overcoming of patriarchy. I think that's inevitable. Okay, good. Hello. You do say something about um, the way law enforcement react to riots. And if you mentioned, you know, obviously there's been a lot of riots in the 60s and coming up to present. Do you think there's been any, um, do you see any, any sort of evolution or any great development in the way they're responding to uh, riots, any sort of new thinking they're doing? And also, do you think that the uh, media has an influence, uh, you know, the way they handle, for example, the first of all, news reporting and also, um, you know, the, news, the, the new abilities with social media, the way people can communicate what's going on? Do you think law enforcement are changing in response to uh, these new sort of communication methods about you know, getting the, the word out about what re what's happening on the street? Yeah, it's, in it's interesting. I want to... Um celebrate you on your up-to-dateness. Almost always the social media question I get from a 20-year-old who, who deeply believes that social media has transformed all reality. No, I can tell. It's like 27, right? Um, uh, there have been, I mean, there have been extraordinary uh, transformations to how riots are responded to. What's interesting is, is uh, the speedy evolution, in my experience, which is, it, it keeps changing over and over again. No one's found the perfect formula for a good riot, and and no police force has found the perfect formula for a good anti-riot because sort of uh, strategies and uh, tactics evolve quite swiftly. Uh, it's in, in the U.S., I don't know if you have this phenomenon here, we have these like superstar cops who actually just go from city to city. So if there's going to be, uh, you know, the Republican convention is happening, the Cleveland will hire the superstar cop who they think is really good at riot control as, on a huge contract for a year to prepare the city for it and to uh, set up for it. And yet strategies tend to, of rioters tend to evolve to 
to outflank it, and then and they, they, they change ongoingly. So no one's figured out sort of a perfect formula either way. I watched as the riots unfolded in California in 2011 and 2012 in Oakland, uh, which I had a fairly good vantage on. I watched the police try just like a series of different strategies, and it seemed to me, honestly, to be at random. Here's the thing. Cops have incredible firepower, but they're morons. Uh, <laughs> They really don't have much genius to them, although some people like to impute it, impute it to them. And so some, sometimes they're like, we'll go in and we think we know who the leaders are and we'll send snatch squads and we'll send in and we'll grab the leaders and that'll stop it from happening. And sometimes it's massive show of force, 10,000 cops on the street. And sometimes it's like they bring out the tear gas early. But often these things are training for them. That's the weirdest thing when you're in a situation where you're like being trained upon and you know, like... I mean, I just want, can I just say one brief thing? I, I do think there is a like very, very historic, significant uh, gap or difference between something like uh, riot, um, handling a riot in terms of disbursement. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. So if you think about the right act, where you've got an hour to leave <laughs> once it's been read... Um, and often dispersal is one of the major tactics in those countries. So use of water cannons, which was obviously a big debate in, in Britain as well. Um, and Forrest Johnson bought them and then they've gone somewhere now else. I think some art collectible, them. I don't know. Um, and so there's a kind of, there is, a, there's obviously a big, uh, you know, major divide between dispersal and containment. So obviously we have Kettling mainly, which was challenged in, um, in the European uh, Court of Human Rights quite recently. Um, because it's obviously indiscriminate, you know, it's simply a way of um, um, holding a bunch of people who may or may not even be connected to the particular event. They didn't really use Kettling in the 2011 rights, but they use it all the time in protests, and especially anti-fascist protests, and that they increasingly, for a while, were using mass arrest. So simple, simply mass arrest of anyone on suspicion of, so like, and keep uh, holding people in uh, hangars and buses overnight and this kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, uh, one thing I really want to always think about is this, the material reality of what police are doing, what these tactics are, and, you know, when, when things are training, when things are, you know, and I, I agree that there, lots of these things aren't directed by individual cops, although, for example, if baton use is a 
remains the individual responsibility of the officer who uses his or her baton in a particular circumstance, right? Even when there's been a command to raise batons. Anyway, you know, there, there are lots of very specific things that you can know, like that one can know and that one should know <laughs> about these things. Um, and I think the sh if there is a shift, it's a complicated shift, I guess, between containment and dispersal. But I think those are maybe the two main ways of thinking about how police deal with crowds. And the social media point, obviously, people went to prison for four years, in one case, for simply uh, creating a, a, a jokey event for a riot in their hometown that didn't happen. So from the standpoint of the state, they don't differentiate between virtual and real riot, if you like. You, you get equally punished for hypothetical riots. And I, and I think it's very important to always see what the state, think about what the state is doing. You know, there's no point in like flapping around in like idealisms and silly post-structuralist ideas about what virtual reality is or what, you know? Like, the state doesn't care. <laughs> the state will send you to prison for a fake Facebook event riot, you know? I mean, I think that's right. What's been striking to me in the United States is that if we, if we take the disbursement containment opposition, which I mean, I would, I, I'm not sure that quite resolves the versions I've seen in the U.S. where, where often the choice seems between direct violence and not. Okay. Um, but but they've gone back and forth, right? They're like they're, they'll they'll go through a phase of kettling and they'll go through a phase of dispersal. Yeah. We have five minutes to dispersal last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, uh, no, it's fine. So I agree; those are the strategies, but but they don't. They seem to change unevenly in ways I don't always understand. Um, as for social media, I agree; it seems to be uh, um, a greater risk than it is a boon to to um, organize. Although, you know, a small book I recommend. So, uh, AK Press collated a bunch of tweets from uh, Baltimore teenagers that were. Tweeted during the 2015 riots, and I think it's worth reading. Just to understand, have a, have a sense on what mostly teenagers we think um, were thinking and and how they were phrasing it during those riots. And I think it's quite fascinating. Uh, so if you can, find, it's a cheap little uh, a book. You can you can get it very inexpensively. I think it's just called the 2015 Baltimore Uprising, uh, an epistolary novel, and uh, it's quite compelling and fascinating. And so clearly it's a place where people who are involved in riots live part of their lives and think about these things, uh, but also is obviously a huge uh, risk to engage in uh, and has led to endless criminalization across the world. Oh, sorry, I need I was wondering about people who rioted in London in August. Was it 2010 or 11? 11. 11, yes. Um, who actually said that they just rioted because they wanted more material things. They weren't poor. They weren't being discriminated against. They weren't unemployed. What does this say about the quality of life in the West? Do you want me to answer that one? Of course. <laughs> I think there's real risks to that, to, to, to taking that straight up. Um, People have all kinds of self-accounting during riots. I'm not sure it's in anyone's interest to tell the truth about themselves if they know the truth about themselves. People often change their stories about why they did things. But 
you saw the buck coming, surely. Let's imagine that the main reason people rioted was to get, just to get more things. Some, so, some, some skeptic referred to rioting as shopping on steroids. Um, some, some Zizek referred to it as um, hyperconsumption, capitalism gone mad. Uh, this is a proletarian shopping. Proletarian shopping, which is not, not always tied to a riot. But, um, but um, let's assume that's the case and that the main reason people riot is to loot things. We're presented with a problem if we accept that which is not that it's not true, but that it is and always has been. This is what the riot always was. This is quite perplexing. People now have a strange idea of riot as just sort of mayhem and people smashing things. And the media, to get to sort of refer to what, to what you're asking, is very happy to play up that aspect of it um, and to show spectacular images of, of mayhem and flames uh, or, or whatever. The history of the riot is, and this is, I try to get at this in my distinction about price setting and struggles in the marketplace. The history of the riot is the history of seizure of goods. The riot in the West, in my accounting, begins more or less with the invention of the world market uh, in the 14th century, when for the first time you start to get merchants shipping grains out of, the, out of an area to, to, uh, to get better prices elsewhere, and people want the grains, just as some people might want a flat-screen TV. It's always a flat-screen TV in this, like the bad people. Like The reason the Greek economy got ruined is because they just spent their money on flat-screen TV. I don't know why that's the case, but that can be a different discussion. Uh, um, the riot begins with people seizing goods. That's always been the history of the riot. And if that's the history of the riot now, that's not a deviation. That's a simple continuation of what the riot always was. The riot is a struggle to get subsistence goods in a way that can be afforded in the marketplace. Now, in your account, some people said, well, I can afford anything. I just did it for kicks. I deeply believe that was one one-hundredth of one percent of the Tottenham riots, deeply. One one-hundredth of one percent. I but don't... even if it wasn't, I mean, so what? I, I mean, I would defend people doing that of and course. taking whatever they want. I mean, rich people always have whatever the fuck they want all the fucking time. Like, I mean, how else are you going to, like, take it from them short of, like, some kind of, you know, mass redistribution of private property? I mean, like, these things are so minimal compared to actual wealth, like taking a pair of trainers or a fucking TV. Like, you know, these don't compare to the kinds of, like, fucking things that rich people have, like, whatever they are. Bank accounts. <laughs> Money. <laughs> No, and, the, and the question of who gets to say, oh, you have enough, you're not allowed to riot. Whereas you, like, who's, who's the commissar in charge of you have enough, right? No, exactly. And it's like, like sackcloth and ashes, like you should only steal. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is the inverse of the bread problem, right? Oh, but, uh, you know, you could wear a bin bag and, you know, if you're hungry, perhaps you could steal a croissant from a bin. But, you know, like you're not allowed to like nice things. Like, fuck that. I mean, rich people know what nice things are. That's the point. They're nice. <laughs> and everyone should have them. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, I do. It's like... <laughs> My heart goes out to the people who work so hard. My parents were both immigrants, and this happened to a lot of people who were immigrants and who lost... Everything. This isn't true. This is one of these media myths. No, it's not. It is true. No, we just started this thing during the riots called the Riot Wiki, which basically um, analysed on every street the kinds of shops that were broken into, and they were overwhelmingly chain stores. 
you know, the, like London is no longer a series of kind of like petty bourgeois, you know, little shop owners, you know, this whole idea of England, you know, that's not true. In England, and it was English riots, is dominated by chain stores and like fucking money lenders and like these loan shops and like these are the things that got smashed up, you know. Because you know, these, are, these, are not, these are not, you know, poor, struggling people losing their businesses. Oh, some of them were. No, this was the narrative that was pushed by the media, maybe in one or two cases. Cer- 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 certainly, when I, I mean, I went to Ferguson after Michael Brown was killed. Uh, and so I was there for, the, the, that was, uh, and people, for, I've forgotten this very swiftly, it was the longest riot in the history of the United States. It was the, the Ferguson one, because there's a second riot right after the officer is acquitted, Darren Wilson is acquitted. Um, there's a second series of riots nationally, but the first riots in Ferguson after Michael Brown was killed are the longest riots in the United States. And I was there for most of them. Uh, and I got a chance to see exact. So Ferguson is a small town, 21, population of 21,000. It's got one main drag. Uh, that's, is that an Americanism? Main street? Um, Sorry. I think we're, we're, we're like, you know, saturated with American culture. I think we know. Um, <laughs> And so it's actually very clear what stores got looted and what stores got burned. Um, and it was not perfect, absolutely. It was not only like chain stores, but it was mostly the chain stores, uh, almost without fail. There was a bunch of local beauty shops. There was a bunch of beauty shops, cosmetic shops, wig shops, nothing. Uh, so in my experience, imperfect as it is. I think you both have to touch with the real world. <laughs> I guess the, the issue of the question before was a lot about quantifying the demand. And like, I guess my point before was a bit about, obviously, the strike has these set of demands and it kind of like asks either politely or not politely, but it has this end agenda that it defines. I'm like, can you hear me or not? Yeah. A little bit. Um, and then the riot just, just takes whatever it might be. And actually, my issue of the question before is precisely because it quantifies what's taken. And that's not really the point, really. Yeah. Um, uh, but kind of in the same vein, sorry, I thought I wasn't going to ask it, so I've got a bit lost, um, is uh, that what I liked about the title of the book, which maybe defines most of what I want to say, is the lack of the article, the lack of making it verb or noun. And I think there's so much in not making it a noun or a product or a thing that's created as static, but actually a constantly reproducing of spaces and of time as verb. And I think maybe in the way that a lot of the way it's been discussed is as this, this static thing, but the act of producing is what's important, which also in just... I kind of forgot what I was saying because I was listening to this last person in a way, but it kind of proves the point of the issue with, yeah, quantifying what is done as done rather than what is being done in that moment, and that's what needs to be said, and that's what resists, yeah, this quantification of, like, what is taken and, and not why, but the what is taken as being the point, which it precisely isn't, I think. But I lost my thing, so I stopped. Uh, I mean, I think that's true. Thank you. I don't know. You know, um, I think it's important to understand it as a as a motion, right? And and in another conversation, we could try and detail not just the fact that it's this historical sequence, but how each emerges out of the other. How um, you know strikes emerge actually out of circulation struggles. So, for example, strikes all emerge in the in the West out of uh, out of transport, almost always out of ship transport, and uh, and how the, riot, the, the contemporary riot emerges out of the tradition of, of, of strike. And, and so that idea of ongoing emergence. And the one thing I would, the one thing I worried about about the title of the book, which between you and me, I didn't choose, 
Uh, um, long story. Uh, <laughs> um, I worry that it might suggest a sort of endless oscillation, right, or, or atavism, where it's like, it's just, it's just, for the rest of history, it's just riot, strike, riot, strike, riot, strike. And I didn't mean to suggest that at all. Um, in fact, in the book, they kind of give us riot, strike, riot, prime, and try and give an account about how this, the second period of riot is distinct from the first period of riot and signals over and over again the ways we can't go back to that period and are going to have to go forward to something else. Uh, but that sense of ongoingness and emergence, the verb, as you say, is really well put. I mean, I think that's, I think that's a, a, a generous account of, of the motion I was trying to capture in the book. Mm. Okay, yeah, I feel bad because I already said these people <laughs> over here, some three people or something. Uh, so uh, ch- sort of changing the focus of the discussion a little bit, um, could I uh, persuade you to, uh, could I sort of play devil's advocate to your thing about uh, the strike being I'm about shocked, the shocked. Uh, wage <laughs> and the riot being about uh, subsistence goods, because I would say that the function of the riot in class struggle is actually much wider than that in history. And um, so I was thinking of two examples. One is the, uh, the Brixton and other places riots of 1981. Uh, so clearly it was partly about the social wage. We had Scarman, and then we had millions and millions of pounds put into Brixton, and uh, which you could call some kind of success. Uh, as a result of those uh, uh, actions. Um, but, it, but it was also definitely... I mean, you have touched on it, the thing about this incredible happiness that the police have kept out of a whole big area for a whole period of time. I mean, that was definitely... And, you know, isn't that a challenge to the state? And isn't it an attempt to reorder the relationship yeah. between yeah. the community yeah. and the state? Yeah. The other example I was thinking of is that Russian peasants have been uh, doing what most people would call rioting for centuries, and it's not fundamentally about the wage, it's about the land and who owns it, which is also an issue of control. And it's also not only the landlord, but the state and the church in the case of uh, Russian history. So I just think it hasn't, it hasn't the definition got to be broader. That's beautiful. I really appreciate that. Um, yes, exactly. No, sort of. Uh, um, so the first thing to say is about the sort of the Brixton riots and that, of, of what they got. This is actually an important thing to remember about riots. This gets back to the, the point you made. Riots almost always tend to split and divide. Once, once they go on for a day or two, a side emerges that actually wants to make demands, quantifiable demands, and they often get them. Riots, and this is a strange counterintuitive fact, but worth remembering, are an incredibly effective reformist tool historically. You know how there's a government fixed price for how much the, they can charge for a baguette in France? You've been over to France, right? You know about France? You know how there's a fixed price for how much they can charge for a baguette? Thank the riot. You know how there's a fixed price for how much a half kilo of uh, tortillas can cost in Mexico? Thank the riot. The history of bread riots has convinced governments to actually set, in various countries, to set limits on how much bread, whatever the local version, can cost. And that's not the only example. Uh, we can think of the minimal but not non-existent dispensations the U.S. government gave after the uh, long, hot summer of 67 and 68, um, in both of those summers in the U.S., there was around 180 race riots, uh, and you get very, like housing urban development grants and all kinds of things. So the riot is often quite effective at winning limited political gains, and this is worth, uh, worth remembering. Um, that said, I think you're also quite correct that one of the goals of a riot is to control space. I think that's inarguable. When people, you know, there's, of course, one of the ways people riot shame rioters is, but you... <laughs> You, you, 
But you burned buildings in your own neighborhood. Why didn't you go to Angel and burn buildings there? Sorry, Alberto. No, Angel, um, <laughs> that's completely wrong. You mean like South Ken or Damn Kelsey it. Or I never like... know my lies. I don't know. Paris. Whatever it is. Like, um, but it seems to me that one of the goals of Riot, in the, in the, especially in the contemporary era of Riot, Riot Prime in my, in my language, um, is exactly so, uh, is to make neighborhoods um, undesirable or unsafe spaces both for police and for other kinds of outsiders. You can think of gentrifiers or things like this. Uh, that's absolutely the case. I would try and narrate this in that distinction I made before, the, the, the inversion where previously economy near, state far, and now economy far, state near. Riots have no choice but to throw, them against, throw themselves against the state. If you look at Greece, right, the, um, the prolific, heroic, in some ways choreographed, endless struggle, it's just like hurl the, the rioters hurling themselves against the parliament building and the, and the, and the line of cops and Communist Party uh, over and over again um, because the state is what's there and it's what you have to fight. So I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, to, to restate my distinction, riots are born in price setting but more generally, they're circulation struggles. And I would argue that struggles against the state, right, against the police, fall in that category of circulation struggles, which is to say they control... Space goes with circulation. Time goes with production, because production value is measured in socially necessary labor time. We're getting fancy here. Um, whereas the space of the market, the space of circulation, is the space of price, and it's organized by space itself. Uh, exchange means the switching of places of objects, right? It's totally spatial. Uh, and so control over space is a fundamental character of circulation struggles, and that's the category I'd want to hold on to in the contemporary era more than price setting, which is more like the origin or baseline. Does that make sense? Is that useful? Yeah. All right. I just had one... <laughs> one very brief... I love brief. modeling. <laughs> so um, Carol Duggan, who's Mark Duggan's aunt, um, has in the past suggested that Mark Duggan's execution was part of a gentrification process. That this was, that police violence and racist police violence was tied to a process of the gentrification of Tottenham, which in a way relates quite clearly, I think, oh, to yeah. like, the idea of riot crime. Uh, this, and so I live in the Bay Area in California, San Francisco, Oakland, which is sort of always gentrifying, but has gone through a particularly intense phase of late. And it's obvious that you get intensified policing in neighborhoods that are gentrifying as they try to clear people of color and poor people out. Yeah, and you get white people reporting things more often, and you get Absolutely. white juries in areas yes, exactly. where previously juries would have acquitted people, and this is exactly right. very yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But there's, I mean, there's a tension there, which is to say the endless eviction of poor workers and even non-workers from these neighborhoods. Well, the question remains, so all these rich tech industry people is the famous cliche, but, you know, these rich sort of new, who's going to do their service work for them? Because that turns out to be the work you can't automate. You can automate a lot of uh, agricultural work, industrial work, service work is famously hard to automate. So you need a population nearby enough that they can commute to do your goddamn service work for you, but you don't want them in your neighborhood. And that's the incredible tension that's just constant uh, where I live and I think in many other, other places out of which violence erupts endlessly and always racialized, always classed. And gendered. Um, all right. Uh, there were like, I can't remember before. Was it the same people? Um, <laughs> hello. So there's a number of questions I could ask uh, in that very interesting talk. Ask one loudly, though. 
Oh, hang on. Sorry, mind. Can you not hear me? No, I can. Yeah. Okay, fine. Sorry. Um, so there's a number of interesting questions I could ask about that talk that you gave, um, but I want to concentrate on one of them towards the end um, about the idea that we're moving to a period where the struggle will be neither about wages or market dependency, but something else, um, which is fine, but it sounds very abstract to me, and it would be good to get some examples, some more concrete description about what this might actually be like in practice. Now, if it's not people who are dependent on a wage or people who are outside the wage process, by which I assume you mean people like, say, the people who live in, say, the, the favelas in Latin America and people like that, who are dependent on their own kind of personal labor, whatever that is. What is it? Because if people are dependent on neither, to me that means they starve to death. So who are we talking about and how are they going to act? Uh, yeah, thank you for that question, which I think is, is one of the many right, important questions. If I had a comprehensive answer to it, that would mean I knew the secret to the revolution and we would not be here tonight. We'd be elsewhere doing other things. Um, and I, I don't claim to have the secret to the revolution, but I don't mean to dismiss your question. Um, I think that if you want to look at some examples, you could probably look at struggles that are happening in Oaxaca, Mexico right now, uh, or, or that happened in Oaxaca, Mexico in 2006. Uh, I think you could look at very partial inst instances, and I, I want to admit to and underscore their partiality in various occupations, like movements of the plaza and Occupy movements in 2010, 11, 12, where people set up communal kitchens uh, that served people who were uh, entirely, entirely dispossessed, excluded from the wage and, and the marketplace. Now, those are partial examples because in some ways those kitchens were funded by people who were still making a wage and sort of go off to do their job and then come back to Occupy Wall Street and with that money donate it and buy food for the communal kitchen that would then serve people who had no money, nothing whatsoever. So it's not a magical, perfect detachment yet. The question I think that I would uh, try to append to your question is, are we seeing signs of this at a global level? Maybe. I think so. Again, I would refer to the example of Oaxaca. I think that we're probably seeing other examples elsewhere. They're not going to happen in the industrialized, early industrializing core. Like these first detachments that I'm going to call the commune are actually unlikely, I would think, to arise in substantial ways in the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany, Japan, France. That seems unlikely to me. Uh, I would expect to see them emerge in other places uh, where the question, as you raise, of the favelas or of the, of, of the truly excluded, the lumpen, have been raised much earlier on. Right? Fanon, in 1960, is already writing about the lumpen as the revolutionary uh, population, the, re the, the revolutionary subject, um, trying to overcome this classical distinction in orthodox Marxism between the, the industrial working class and the lumpen as being fundamentally counter-revolutionary. Fanon sees that this model is not going to really work for the global south, um, it's not going to work for the future. And I think that's right. So I think we'll start to see those kinds of struggles emerge uh, in places like that. I may be being optimistic, um, and, but I think they'll look like people figuring out how to feed themselves and give themselves shelter without recourse. And if that means seizing lands to start doing but agricultural work. That. I mean, the whole thing is it's like been expropriated. You know, like that's that's, that's but right. The question the question is: Will they re decolonial struggles or anti-colonial struggles 
which are then characterized as riots or rebellions when, I mean, in the, you know what I mean? Like, there's a difference. I don't know. Tell me, no, tell me more about what you mean. Later. Um, uh, person X, that's my something. I think this person. This person. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't do this. I can't actually say anything. <laughs> Um, earlier in the in the dialogue, um, it, you kind of established that it's not a normative book, um, that it's not prescribing how one ought or ought not to behave. Um, but it would seem to me that there's been a sort of implied moral justification of writing uh, during the talk, um, but either of sort of ideological justification or of actually kind of championing pragmatic outcomes, the things that have been achieved by writing. Um, first of all, would you accept that as a premise? No. Then my second question is moot. <laughs> Um, oh, what's well, your, my second uh, question was going to be that: At what point would you draw a sort of moral line in the sand, or could you? But oh, I would have loved to answer so that question. I should have said yes. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess I do want to try and hold on to a difference between analysis and justification. Um, I'm, pre- I'm prepared to justify almost anything humans do. I'll take the Nietzsche line: right? nothing human is alien to me, uh, um, and in that sense, I'll justify anything. Give me a Drink and what the hell? Uh, um, uh, I think from I, I think what is quite interesting is the hysteria. I'm not saying you, but let's say the press around the risk that someone might justify these things. It is all important that they be unthinkable and thus unjustifiable. So even making them thinkable seems like the first step toward justification. Maybe it is, but I don't mean to get to justification. I just mean to get to thinkability. If thinkability provides a context for justification for you, good on you. But justification is a moral category. I could not have less interest in morals. Uh, And so the question of where I draw a moral line in the sand, which is your second question, which is a much better one, nowhere. Because morals are a non-category. But we could go further. I mean, E.P. Thompson's very Go further than that? How can I go? <laughs> I mean, E.P. Thompson's very famous account of, of some of the early rights is, you know, it's the moral economy of the crowd. You know, and that there is that category of morality and the relationship between morality and the economy, like, which positively we can defend. Well, actually, I disagree with Thompson on that, on know, that, on that, on that score. I, all right, I'll defend you can't. You can. I mean, that, that account by Thompson, uh, which I referred to earlier, the moral economy of the crowd in the uh, British crowd in the 18th century, one of the two or three greatest essays I've ever read in the world, along with Maria Rosa Dalla Costa and a couple of others, Anwar Sheikh. Uh, but one of the things he claims is that the basis of the largely bread riots that he details is that there's this perduring sense of what a just relationship is between uh, the peasant and the landholder. Uh, And when this is traversed or traduced, uh, it's thus moral to demand that we return to that previous dispensation. I'm not sure I believe that that's an accurate description either of what happens or what people thought. I'm not entirely convinced by that, which is to say, I don't... I th- and, and moreover, I think there's a risk in inviting in that moral framework. I'm not sure what I gained yeah, from it. But, but, I, but Nina is super smart about these things, and if she disagrees, know. I take that very seriously. That's a terrible thing to say. Um, <laughs> no, but I think there is a question of justice, maybe, that, that lies at the heart of some of these things. And it does have to do with redistribution and um, at the heart of things, which is maybe the same way of opposing the relationship between 
oppression and exploitation. You know, it, it is, uh, you know, you don't have to have a substantive concept of justice to know that things are unfair. Do you know what I mean? It's not a moral position. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a practical political position. You know, why should certain people have all this stuff and other people have nothing? You know, I mean, this is a like, practical transformative question. Why should certain people be treated badly all the time on the basis of some bullshit thing? Like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I would want to defend the moral economy of the crowd in that sense. Like, I really would. I, I, I want to say that there is, a, there is a counter concept of justice, a, a notion of justice that is real, that is against you know, the mediatization of concepts of, I don't know, horror or violence or something, that is real. I mean, I know that it sounds sublimely naive, and you're not, like, really allowed to have this position of, like, I don't, I don't pure justice it, or something. But. I don't think it sounds naive. I think that, and maybe this is just my own um, exhaustion, I think that to begin from that premise means a lifetime of debating the exact line of fair, not fair. And I haven't... No, fa- I haven't it's fa- a practical I've, question. It's a practical question. It's, but it turns out in my life to be practic- practically the case that people want to have that argument with you forever and it becomes a sort of deflection. No, I'm just, just ignore those bad people. Uh, <laughs> I mean, person? Uh, last one, I think. Sorry. Uh, it's just following up oh, on... No. Oh, no. No, sorry. Can we have two? Okay, can we have two? Can we have two more? Like yeah. two and then other person. Okay. Um, no, it's just it's just following up on this discussion. I wonder if it might be useful to think of a distinction between morality as prescription. You know, you telling us whether we should riot or not, uh, which I'm glad you're not doing. Uh, and then the other one of uh, you know going back to the EP Thompson of normativity as a kind of descriptive, really, category, actually a very um, non-moralistic category. I mean, in one sense, what E.P. Thompson is saying is that there's a social world that's organized with certain material standards of justice, some of which are quantifiable, some of which less. Um, And actually, what's interesting about Thompson's account, and perhaps also difficult to incorporate into a conception of the riot that might have a more revolutionary horizon is that there's nothing revolutionary about, you know, as you said, you know, riots are very good reformist uh, uh, means. In the, uh, there might be revolutionary riots, but the ones that E.P. Thompson about are, is talking about are not, uh, by any standard, riots that have a horizon of revolution. In one sense, they're both extremely radical and very conservative because they exist in a world where there is such a thing as the right price of bread. And if somebody, and, and the right price of bread is not free, the right price of bread is the right price of bread. So I, th- I think it becomes very difficult then to think of that whole social world as a world that was either implicitly or tendentially you know, oriented towards communism unless one is actually moralistic and, and rather utopian about it. So in, in one sense, I think there is, a, there is a distinction that one can make then between thinking that there are certain forms of social action that have normativity as one of their material constraints. So again, it seems that a lot of forms of collective action around racial oppression and discrimination have a material conception of justice, which has to do with, uh, 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 with a form of you know, extreme and brutal differential domination of a particular, you know, of a particular population. And, 
then it becomes difficult, it would seem, then to map them onto a, a, a form of political economic conflict without taking... So it's not really about, like, so I guess what I'm saying is, like, it's not about whether people themselves think it's about justice or not. It's like, Black, Black Lives Matter is really about what it says it is. It's, it's, and it's not straightforwardly about surplus populations. That, I mean, that would seem, you know, that, that, you know so, th so there is an objective normativity that doesn't involve you making a moralistic argument or saying that riots are good or, or even telling people what to do, but just treating it as, um, you know, as a quite kind of cold social scientific issue that we couldn't understand these phenomena as collective unless that normativity may be better than morality, like some material standards of justice were, were, were part of it. And I guess one could extend that to the strike, but that's a different, that's a different matter altogether. Well, I mean, you won't be surprised to hear I disagree with, with much, of, much of that. Um, and that. I mean, your account seemed to oscillate wildly between believing in intention and not believing in intention, what you think Black Lives Matter is and whether it's about surplus population or not. It obviously is. Um, the idea that you think it's not is interesting to me. Uh, I said it's not just about it. It's, it's, not, not, no, it's, it's, not, not, it's not expressing the problem of contemporary surplus populations. I think it is, and that's what the expression right. looks like. Yeah. Um, I mean, Black Lives Matter is an incoherent, and that's, this, is, this is one of its, you know, I were talking about this earlier, one of its strongest features, right? It actually designates several contradictory things, in the United States at least. It, it, I think it has its own reception here. Uh, but in the United States, it designates, on the one hand, already a kind of, parliamentary electrical, electoral force with a 10-point program and chapters in various cities. And on the other hand, it designates a bunch of people who know absolutely clearly that no amount of electoral um, remonstration will have any impact and that something else has to be done. In fact, that's its origin, is, is post-Trayvon Martin's killing, the sense like, oh, all the kinds of attempts to gain political representation have not worked, will not work, we need something else, which clearly is the riot. Obviously, it's the riot in the United States. That's part of Black Lives Matter, and the other half scissions off, as, as happens, into a kind of electoral proceduralism uh, and, and reformism. Both of those things are true. Um, and they probably designate different class fractions within black America. Um, and Black Lives Matter designates not either one of them, but the irresolvability of those two positions. Uh, and that irresolvability has to do with the irresolvability of exploitation and oppression is the terms you used, or ex exploitation and exclusion, however you want to term it, people who are exploited um, within production, or within the capital, and people who are excluded from it and, and surplus. And that surplus is the knowledge that, that there is no possibility for a remedy within the, within the structure. And so I think absolutely it's the case that the indeterminacy of Black Lives Matter, which is the tension between those two positions, arises because of the presence of the surplus population. I think that's obviously the case. Although I realize I just worked through a sort of slightly complicated sequence to claim something was obvious, and that's a dubious operation. <laughs> um, Otherwise known as I like the <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, that said, like, I, I mean, I like your account of normativity. It's interesting and sophisticated. I'm, your certainty that riots don't have a revolution, revolutionary horizon. That 18th century riots, not contemporary. Uh, 18th century riots. Yeah, but I don't think they were as backward looking as Thompson thinks they were looking, right? So maybe the, co the corresponding concept I need with uh, normativity 
is whether things are backward looking. For, in Thomas's model, they're quite backward looking. I was like, there was a better time. And I just don't think that accurately describes what was happening with riots is like a desire to go back. Uh, and Thompson really needs that to be the case. And is normat there's a risk, right, that there's two kinds of normativity. One is a pure idealism. Here's the perfect world. We should do that. Um, and th but the other is things used to be good. Let's get back to that. And I'm very reticent about that kind of normativity. Uh, and I think Thompson proposes it in a way that I'm not persuaded by. Can that, that, so, oh, now there's two people waving their hands back there. Oh, dear. There is definitely one person who should speak because, I don't know, I think they've been waiting for a long time. Give them a go. Who should it be? Huh? <laughs> yeah, this person, whoever they are. Um, so, uh, just on to carry on with that by way, I don't know whether this is a question or just uh, another way of addressing the point uh, regarding normativity, future, uh, past-oriented, moral sort of evaluations of riots. I mean, it seems to me that we could, drawing on your account, um, take a leaf out of Marx's book regarding, you know, the poetry of the future. And there's a sense in which the riot is a kind of thinking, a collective thinking, that is in advance of its constituents, but it also responds to a concrete, very real situation of very real, I would say, non-reproduction, i.e., you know, the attacks of the police uh, on black people, uh, the contraction of reproduction of people in general in the proletariat, whether working or not. So let's take Tottenham 2011. You have a coordinated capital assault on the reproduction of the working class. The riot comes, you know, in a very concrete way as an antagonistic response to that, right? A negation of that contraction, negation of reproduction. So we could say that in that sense, it's got a context, it's got a situation, and in another sense, it goes much further than anyone involved knew at the outset. Nobody got together and said, right, wouldn't it be a really good idea if we made this series of demands or if we addressed all of these ways in which we've been attacked by the state on this occasion, at this date, right? People didn't know that on that day the police would do what they did, uh, even if the police had been planning it, you know, if you ask Carol Duggan, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's quite possible that this wasn't just an ordinary police yeah. action, but we see it as part of an ongoing cycle of exceptional actions. Anyway, so that all of that is part of the context for the riot. Um, in that sense, the riot is of the moment, but I, I would say that it's kind of legitimate to speak about it as posing this new horizon, precisely in that, you know, it demands a higher level of reproduction right now, straight away, without mediation, uh, addressing the contraction of reproduction that you're already encountering. And in a sense, you know, uh, in a qualitative sort of unlimited sense, right, there is no limit per se. And that is very timely and, and perhaps is the key distinction from the 18th century or earlier riots. So I would say, you know, in order to concretize that, look at what people said. Dead the ends, uh, you know, color war. If you see a cop, shoot. If you see a friend, salute. Right? If you see a fed, shoot. Right, the, the famous text message lines that got reproduced in organs like The Guardian, and I think probably you know, elsewhere now, um, the, the, the rioters themselves said, dead the end, dead the divisions around uh, postcode, around locality um, that, that separate different sections of the working class. So you've got a very direct ethical injunction, right? dead the end. It's a real political and you could say expanded moral statement, i.e., it presumes an expanded level of reproduction. And that's real. That's based on automation. That's based on everything capital has done. Given what capital can do, it is immoral, as Nina's saying, 
that a few people should go on enjoying all this, the good stuff, right? So there you have a grounded historical material, moral, if you like, horizon. Political, maybe, is it as good a word, or maybe, I don't know if you can say the two things at the same time, but anyway, that's my offering. <laughs> what do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's... That's if, the if, best if, way to end the question. I think that's, br- I think that's brilliant. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have much to add to that, and I know we're all anxious to, to move on to whatever the next phase of our existence is. Um, you know, what was interesting to me is in the current struggles in France, uh, which on the one hand are quite interesting, which is to say they're, they're, they're quite massified struggles. So they have been. I think they're waning a bit now. But they're quite massified struggles, and not just massified, but have succeeded in eluding the fairly rigorous control of the national unions, which has always sort of organized mass struggles in France for the last number of decades. Uh, and that, so I think that's quite interesting, even though the demands continue to be quite defensive demands, right? Like, don't make things worse. We'll fight to make things for things. And, like, the positive demand has really vanished as a dimension from these labor-based struggles. But, um, but what's interesting is that the slogan... So there started being these, like, large marches, which are trying to bring together these various, like, the, un- the unions, the standard national unions, the more, the more you know, we call them wildcat unions in the, in the, in the U.S., uh, um, the casseurs, various social groupings, trying to, like, so what was the slogan that, could, that they could all chant together? It turns out the slogan is, everybody hates the cops. And that was an incredibly popular slogan. Two popular songs have been spawned from it. It was drawn from a previous song, uh, and it worked. But and I think maybe this gets back to this person's question. Um, <laughs> it's not actually entirely clear that that slogan has a revolutionary horizon. Uh, it has a unifying force, and it correctly identi- and it's true. Uh, um, but whether it allows a turn toward the question of reproduction, um, as opposed to a metaphysical question of dead the ends, or a political question of everybody hates the cops, whether it turns to a political economic question of reproduction, like that's the that's the question it poses, and that hangs in the air. It's not resolved yet, and I guess I want to leave that hanging in the air. Uh, as I thank you all so much for um, your patience tonight and for, for coming out and, and, for, and Nina especially and LRB Bookstore and um, let's hang out and chat. Thank you Joshua, thank you Nina. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 